This week at Hope Point. Everything is working just like I, I intended. God is saying, all of these things I have created, I have created in order to be a blessing to man, to bring pleasure to him, and to enable him to do what I created him to do. That's why it's good. It reveals who he is and enables us to accomplish what he wants from our lives. So when God says it's good, he's saying this, every single need man has, this creation will satisfy it. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from God's holy word. I have a friend who shares Christ on a lot of college campuses. He's very encouraged by the spiritual hunger that he's seeing, um, not just in the upstate, but all the way from Clemson to Charlotte and, and beyond. And he always starts the conversations with a, using a, a spiritual survey. Number one question on there is, uh, to these students, what do you believe is mankind's biggest problem? And the answers are, are great. They're so great to hear what people are thinking. Poverty, uh, political corruption, disease, uh, access to clean drinking water, uh, crime, war, hatred, selfishness. And every one of those answers is right. Uh, but the answer that's most right is what's wrong with the world is it's broken. And the people who are trying to fix it are themselves broken. That's what's wrong with the world. Um, we live in a broken world. Those who are trying to fix it are broken. That'll never work. Fortunately, we have a word from God, glimpse into his heart of what he wants to do for this world, what he plans to do, what he can do, and what he will do as we begin our last chapter in the book of Revelation. Revelation 22.1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, a reference to Christ, flowing down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the 12 are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. If you are here new, we are at the end of Revelation, and this chapter talks about the new earth that God is going to create after he destroys the present earth that we're now using. After all evil is destroyed, uh, Christians will live forever on this new earth. And in the middle of that new earth, there is a new city. And today we'll see in the middle of that new city is a new garden. So if you've tracked with us from chapter 21, we've gone from uh, rejoicing in the bride there, the church, to a city, and now today we look at a garden. 
Um, the reason why we love Revelation 22 is because of verse 3, that there will no longer be any curse in that city, and that explains why that this new earth will have no pain, because the curse of, over sin will not be there at all. That's what's wrong with this present earth, is this earth is cursed. That is, it works, but it's broken. It doesn't work as efficiently as it once did because it once worked perfectly. That is, it always worked for us. Now it still works for us and does many good things, but it also now on this earth, it, this earth, works against us. Another way to say that is this earth is damaged, but it's still functional. Almost as if you were watching a, a football game and uh, you see a quarterback who's come back after an ACL surgery and the commentators say he's, he's good, but he's lost a step. That's how you would, in a very small way, say about the earth. It, it still produces and allows us to produce good things. You know that where you work, but it's not the earth that it used to be. It's not functioning correctly. It's broken. It's, it's cursed. What we love about how the Bible begins is we get a glimpse on the first pages of the Bible of what this earth looked like before it was broken, before it was cursed. Greatest words probably in literature open the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So that's Genesis 1.1. And the remaining 31 verses in that chapter describe in detail how God did all this or the process, the steps, and what he thought about his work along the way. So you see in verse 1, uh, God said, created light, and when he saw light, he said, that's good. And when he created water and land in verse 9 and 10, he said, that's good. And then when he created plants on the land, God himself said in verse 11, that's good. And then in verse 12, when he created life in the ocean and life on the land, he said, that's good. And then in verses 26 through 31, the last thing he did was to create man and woman. And when he saw them and all that he had done, he said, it is very good. So when you look at that phrase that's repeated over and over again, good, it's you need to take the time to say, what do you think God meant by that? <clears throat> it is good, perfectly, it's, it's sort of saying, this earth is good in the sense that it perfectly reveals who I am. Not completely, because he's infinite, but everything about his creation, you could look and say, that shows us exactly who God is. Shows us his power, beauty, creativity, wisdom, goodness. Uh, in other words, you say you can look at the stripes of a zebra show how creative God is. Or the nuclear fusion reactions on the surface of the sun show how powerful God is. Or you could look at uh, the complexity of the human brain and say that's how wise God is. So creation lets us see what God is like. And it's, it's obviously a glorious picture. But then when he gets to the end of all of that, he didn't just say it's good. He said it's very good or, hey, way better than good. 
my translation. And so it is very good would be not just creation reveals who I am, but creation accomplishes what I want. So very good is more of an assessment of purpose. This thing is going to do what I designed, what I designed it to do. In other words, the bumblebee will uh, pollinate flowers. The earthworm will increase the uh, fertilized capacity of the soil. Everything is working just like I, I intended. And God is saying, all of these things I have created, I have created in order to be a blessing to man, uh, to bring pleasure to him, and to enable him to do what I created him to do. That's why it's good. It reveals who he is and enables us to accomplish what he wants from our lives. So when God says it's good, he's saying this, every single need man has, this creation will satisfy it. There's nothing wanting uh, as man looks at the world. Um, Man and woman, as you know, after God created them, he gave them just beautiful place to live, paradise. Genesis 2, verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man that he had, he had formed. You can read the rest of chapter 2, and you'll see that Eden was absolutely, the Garden of Eden was absolutely uh, perfect in every possible way. No hurricanes, uh, no earthquakes, no tornadoes. Didn't even have rain. It's like God put this giant soaker hose down in the ground. The Bible says a mist came up every day to water the garden. So it was just perfect. You probably have days in your life where you think back, you know what? That was just about a perfect day. Probably late spring or early fall, maybe at a ball game, uh, maybe just the smells are there, the temperature is there, and you say, this is a perfect day. That's every day in the Garden of Eden was a perfect day. No weeds, no briars, no mosquitoes, no crime, no war, no sickness, no bad neighbors. (laughs) Nothing was wrong. Nothing sinful, nothing shameful, nothing fearful, nothing painful. It's just perfect in every way. Adam and Eve. They had a perfect marriage. And every day, not only did they enjoy that perfect love together, they enjoyed that perfect love with God. Said he walked with them. Can you imagine them in the Garden of Eden, putting out a picnic blanket by the river, and not only experiencing immeasurable pleasures that nobody's ever known since then, but looking over and saying to God, who's on your blanket, thank you. That was the Garden of Eden. But if you keep reading chapter 2 and transition to chapter 3, it's where everything changes as evil slithered into the garden. Genesis 3, now the serpent was crafty, and he said to the woman, did God really say? Later on in the Bible, this uh, serpent is identified as Satan, 
has a lot of several names in the Bible, but it's an intelligent, evil being that came into the garden and tempted Adam and Eve to doubt God and trust Him over God. Um, just remember, God is the one that had given them every pleasure that their eyes, ears, arms, legs, lungs would ever experience. And now Satan is telling them, I am more trustworthy than God, and they believed it. And so they gave their allegiance to Satan, uh, yielded to the temptation that he offered. And in response to this, God says, this is so appalling what you have done. I've given you everything, Satan's given you nothing, and you're entrusting yourself to him. This is so appalling, I'm going to curse my entire universe. And he did. It's told about three times in Genesis, but this is enough. When God says this to Adam, uh, verse 17, to Adam he said, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. <clears throat> so how, <clears throat> how big of a deal, <clears throat> how big of a deal is it to sin against God? Well, there's your answer, and the world that you're about to go into is the answer. How big of a deal is it to sin against God? How disrespectful, how unloving, how ungrateful, even one sin against infinite, benevolent majesty produced from God a curse on all the world for one sin. That's how deserving he is and how insane and ungrateful it is to rebel against him. Uh, Romans 8 summarizes this in just one verse about why the world's so hard now after that curse. Romans 8, 20, for the creation was subjected to frustration by the will of the one who subjected it. So the Bible wants to uh, make very clear that Adam and Eve did not somehow do something that passively uh, led to a curse. And no, God's response to their disobedience was to curse his own creation. The word frustration is, uh, basically means that it's, it no longer, like I said, no longer works like it's supposed to. Uh, again, the universe is, or the world, the earth is, is good to us, uh, but it's cursed. It's, it's broken. It's not uh, efficient, uh, and it can be brutal, um, but it's not as bad as it could be. It's interesting. God cursed the earth, but not as much as he could have, which is common grace, which means that God does not allow things to be as bad as they, as they could be. But nonetheless, this earth is, frustrates us. We can build things, but, but work is hard. It's, just, it's like it, it didn't go right. It was hard to get there. And then once we build it, it falls. Uh, giant buildings. The land shakes and quakes, they fall. Beautiful homes built on the coast 
Storms come and wash them away. So we can build things. It's hard to build things. Even the things we build um, go away. So good things will happen, but the earth that was designed to work totally for us now can work and does work against us. It's, it's cursed. It's, it's broken. And then everybody who was born into this world is also broken. Uh, we, we come into this world and you can read a book on love and somebody could tell you to love, but then all of a sudden you get involved in a relationship and you do something that's unloving. It's because you're broken. And you're surrounded by broken people that just exacerbate your brokenness. And even when you get things right, it all ends eventually in brokenness. I mean, you can do as many pull-ups as you want in a day and a year and swim a bunch of laps, but there's going to come a time where your body is overtaken by age or disease and definitely death. The world is broken, and we know that, by the way, life ends. So after the curse, um, God banished Adam and Eve from the garden. Genesis 3.23, so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, angels, uh, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Um, They had to leave the garden because the garden was a place of perfection and any trace of unholiness in your uh, being cannot dwell in a perfect place like Eden. Um, Forgive me for showing sort of a cartoony picture of what it looked like, but sometimes it's better than nothing. And I was just looking at this this week of Adam and Eve, and just imagine what they're feeling like. What did we just give up? And, and this is what we, learning from them, need to always remember. Every time we sin, we lose the land. We lose paradise. We lose blessing in exchange. We bring about in our life unnecessary pain. Unnecessary shame. That's the, what happened when they, they left the garden. And so from this moment on, um, the whole story of the Bible after Genesis 3 is God's commitment to bring mankind, uh, his, his, his redeemed, believing, repenting church, back to the garden. That's God's the whole story of the Bible is us getting back to the garden. Um, so even though man has never been able to re-enter the garden because it's a place of perfection, that's where the whole story of the Bible is leading us back to Eden. Now, the way that the, God tells us this over and over again in the Old Testament is he, he does it through what theologians would call types you could just think pointer. So, well, why don't they say pointer? Right? Type sounds cooler. A theological type. But a type is a pointer, a symbol, something in the Old Testament, like a person, place, or thing, and it points to a magnificent reality in the New Testament. So, what I want to tell you today is that this journey to Eden 
is all over the Old Testament. And when God did various things in the Old Testament, it was a type, a pointer, saying, I'm going to bring you back to Eden. One of the places where we first see this is um, in Genesis chapter 12, the story of Abraham. God comes to him, and at that particular time, Abraham is living in this city called Ur, uh, which is in present-day Babylon, or later in the Bible, Babylon. And God comes to him and says, leave this city and go to the promised land. In other words, you were not born to live in Babylon. That land over there, promised land, is where you should live. And that was a pointer to God's promise to eventually take us to Eden. In other words, the promised land was a type, a symbol of the ultimate promised land in Revelation 22, where we are, we're, all, we're all headed. Uh, so when they got to the promised land with Abraham, the Bible says it was so garden-like, it, it was described as a place flowing with milk and honey. Cows were producing, flowers were producing, a lot of greenery, and even though Abraham was in the promised land, he knew this is not the ultimate. This land, this strip of land, it's not the ultimate place. Hebrews chapter 12, we looked at this, but I think it'll make more sense now. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land. He made it. He made it to the great land, and yet when he got there, he knew this is not the destination. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations. This is Revelation 21 and 22 whose architect and builder is God, and they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So the promised land, Israel, is not the destination that God has in mind for anybody. It's just a type, a pointer to the fact, I'm taking you believing ones to the ultimate promised land of, of Eden. And all along their journey, even in the journey to the promised land, God would remind them of, of, of this is where we're headed, to the promised land. You know, I told you last week that for the 40 years that Israel traveled in the wilderness, God chose to live in a tent, a tabernacle. And the, the thing was so dark inside that you had to light it with these lampstands, which you would recognize as a Jewish menorah. And you can see by the design that it was specified in Exodus 25, it was designed to be garden-like, plant-like. Those are all buds, flowering buds. It's a tree because they just left. Remember, Adam and Eve gave up the tree of life. And God was telling them, even in the way that he lit the tabernacle, there's a, a new tree, a new garden at the end of this journey. And then 1 Kings chapter 6, no longer were they living, uh, God living in a tent. He upgraded, got in a nice place, uh, a temple. And the builder of that was Solomon. 
Look how Solomon designed it. First King, first King 6, 29. On the walls all around the temple, Solomon carved cherubim, angels, palm trees, and open flowers. All of that is the language of Eden, the garden. So even in the Old Testament, God was over and over again telling his people, I'm taking you back to, to Eden. Um, but despite all of these blessings that God gave to his people, uh, just like Adam and Eve, they did not believe God was worthy of their obedience. They're in the promised land. And they still tell him, you've not done enough for us to secure our devotion and our love. So they once again lost the land. Uh, five, <clears throat> was that 578, maybe 580 BC, I forget, 539 BC, whatever, sixth century BC. <laughs> Babylon destroys Jerusalem and Israel leaves the land. So again, you got to see this. Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve rebel. What did they do? They lose the land. They lose paradise. Um, Israel's in the promised land. They reject God. What, did, what happens? They lose paradise. They lose the promised land, which was, a remember, a type, a pointer. But what does God do? Does he give up on them, does he give up on us? Nope. He sends Persia to defeat Babylon. And all of a sudden, Israel is free to return to what? The land. Because God, throughout all of the Bible, is telling, through these types, land talk, I have a garden for you that's new, renovated, and perfect. And I'm committed to getting you there, stubborn people. Uh, nothing shows us the commitment, the devotion of God as when he sent Jesus Christ from heaven, uh, son of God, born of a virgin, lived on earth with all the trials that we do, was sent here, however, to sacrifice his body on a cross so the sins of the world, everybody in this room, everybody on this stage right now, their sins absorbed into the body of Christ. Well, on the last night of Jesus' earthly life, he had to decide once again, am I going through with being stripped, beaten, nailed to a cross, and die a death of suffocation and shame? So he's, he's praying. He's praying. And the same intelligent evil being that was with Adam and Eve, the serpent, the devil, came to Jesus. And guess where Jesus was praying once again in a garden? And this is what that moment was like. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And medical people say this is probably the stress that not many people know, but that would occur for that the, the capillaries of one's brain on the surface, capillaries burst, and Jesus would have probably died there in the garden were it not for an angel strengthening him, giving him the ability to last through the night so he could die the next day on the cross. 
where God intended for sin to be judged and you and I to be forgiven. Think about this. When Adam was in the garden, he, perfect, no pressure, and one little measly garden snake persuaded him, abandoned God. Jesus, on the other hand, faced the full onslaught of all of the powers of hell. And those voices in unison were saying, quit, walk away, don't obey, save yourself. And Jesus prayed it out until the next day he died on the cross. And guess what happened when he died on the cross and God poured out his wrath on his son for our sins? Galatians 3, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, everyone who's hung on a tree or the cross made from the wood of a tree, everyone who's hung on a cross is cursed. So God, who cursed the creation, now cursed his own son so that he would not curse and condemn you. And that's why we're so excited when we get back to Revelation 22.3. No longer will there be any curse because Christ's death has removed it and made possible a new city and a new earth and a new, a new garden. Now, with all of that said, I think you can appreciate what this garden looks like in chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. Isn't this beautiful? Where's the last, you know, the last time we talked, we were doing garden talk, Garden of Eden. What was that angel doing? Flaming sword, do not enter. Now this angel is inviting us all who come to Christ are welcome in the garden. And look at this river flowing from the water or this, this river of the water of life. I put Ezekiel 47 down in the bottom because I wanted you to know that this is the second time that the Bible has talked about this great river coming from God. In Ezekiel 47, it's the, the river comes out of a temple uh, down the, through the desert, and unlike any other stream, the farther it gets away from its source, the deeper it is in Ezekiel 47. No tributaries, and it empties into the Dead Sea, which is seven times saltier than the ocean. No life can exist there. And Ezekiel 47 says, when that river of life in Ezekiel 47 hits the Dead Sea, everything comes to life. Fish are swimming, plants on the side of the Dead Sea. And here in uh, Verse 1 of chapter 22, we don't see Ezekiel's temple because Ezekiel, he had no idea what was going on. He just writing as the Spirit of God said, and Ezekiel didn't know that there would be a day when there was no temple, but we've seen repeatedly in chapter 21 and 22, there is no temple in heaven. There is no place to go to meet with God because he is the temple. He's everywhere. Everywhere you are, you're in the temple. You're inside inside God. And this water of life, this isn't Ezekiel's river. That was, it's a cool river. But this water of life, Jesus told us in John chapter 7, that's coming out of the throne of God, is the Holy Spirit. 
So look what you have here in Revelation 22. God the Father on his throne, Jesus Christ the Lamb on the throne, and from the throne of the Father and the Son comes God the Spirit. And that's where we will spend eternity. I love this. On either side of the river stood the tree of life. Now that's cool. Haven't seen that tree of life. That's the last thing Adam and Eve saw when they were expelled from the garden, the tree that could give life. And look at this tree. It bears 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves are for the healing of, of the nations. Every single wound in your life will one day be healed as you rejoice in the presence of God in this heavenly city. Oh. I mean, some of you, you have debilitating physical wounds. Some of you have debilitating emotional, spiritual wounds. And the promise of God in Revelation 22, it's whatever wounds you're carrying, they will be one day completely healed. And this, this water, this river, Holy Spirit, life, can you imagine just immersing yourself in the river of God? You, can you remember, it's easy for you to think about a time in your life, 95 degrees, you're hot, maybe at the beach, and all of a sudden you just get your legs to running and you end up in that water. And it's the best feeling in the whole world. Every part of your heated body is soothed and calmed by that water. Can you imagine what that's going to feel like when that water is God? The river of life coming from the throne of God is indeed God himself. I want the band to come up here now. I'm going to pray because Hunter has done a great job of putting all of the story of the Bible in regard to the garden in a song. You can stay seated. Just rejoice in God's promise fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, we have seen mighty truths and we, we're longing right now for that garden. We're longing for paradise. We're longing to take a leaf from the tree of life and be healed. Life hurts. Uncertainty hurts. Regret hurts. Failure, disappointment hurts. Accusation hurts. Yeah, there's going to be healing. I can't imagine the, the wounds in this room. I thank you that for those who follow Christ the Lamb, you'll heal them in the garden, in Eden. We can't wait to be there. Thank you, Jesus, that the curse will be removed. No curse on earth. And an angel will welcome us because no sin at all no sin at all will be in our life. We look forward, Holy Spirit, to swimming in your river of love and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.
For a moment we must linger here With our vain and fruitless toil And as the moon and sun and days appear A quiet witness says to the spoil And there's a language that we're trying to speak Some innocence that we have known Is with a long and lonesome beckoning And a weariness inside our bones And the heart wants back The time long past Where the air is clear and no stain was found in Eden. She's whispering it now. Come back. Come back. Soon you will be coming back And all the flowers of the fields will fade Covered by the bramble and the dust And all the days to come will pass again as the clock submits us all into its lust And the earth wants back A time long past Where the air was clear And no stain was found in the end She's whispering it now Come back Come back Come back Soon you will be coming back
my heart longs for some distant land we will see and understand where she comes running to say singing welcome back Welcome back You've come back Yeah, welcome back So how about that, how beautiful the Bible opens with a garden, closes with a garden. And as we saw in the previous verse, that God wants all of the nations, all peoples to be there. That's what this church lives for. So while we preach, give, and go, and send, everyone should hear of this garden in the city in this earth. I'll close with these remarks. Revelation 22. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will see him, and they will see his face. I feel like I say it every week. Uh, oh, this is the heaven of heaven. <laughs> uh, but this is the heaven of heaven. This is what you're yearning for. This is what you're longing for, to see infinite Beauty, infinite, welcoming, non-condemning, sin-eradicating beauty. It's what you want. When you see the face of God, you got people in your life, when you see their face, it's just, oh, I'm so, so happy. They love me. You see his face and did your name or his name is going to be on your forehead you say what does that mean it means that there's just going to be something so apparent about the devotion and passion of your heart everybody's going to know when I see you might as well be written on your head, follower of the Lamb, and I'll see nothing else. Just full-out devotion to Christ. And when you look at me, that's what you'll see. Oh, Richard, full-out follower, lover of Christ. My head. At least I had a, a great moment uh, Friday. <laughs> I helped her bring uh, a couch that I've been promising for one year to get reupholstered, and we drove to Greenville, and the couch did not fly out of my truck. That has happened before. <laughs> so we made it to this guy's shop, and the name of his shop is Arnold and the Lamb. We used to live in Greenville, so we, we knew about his place, but we hadn't been there in a long time, and I was grateful to see you know healthy and 
I just asked him, wanted to clarify. I said, Arnold, I think I know this answer, but would you tell me why you named your store Arnold and the Lamb? And he said, because Jesus Christ, God's Son, is the Lamb of God. The whole book of Revelation talks about him. He died for my sins and is preparing for me a glorious future. I want every aspect of my business to know that Arnold loves the lamb. You know, I don't know when Jesus Christ returns, I don't know how many people in Greenville will, will it'll be written on their heads, follower of the lamb. I don't know how many people in Greenville will make it. It's not up to me. I know one, Arnold. He loves the lamb. I hope you love the lamb. One final thought in these first five verses. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. I just can't even comprehend that. No sun, no moon, nothing anymore, no streetlights. That the entire earth is now going to be illuminated by the glory of God shining through the face of Jesus Christ. And that's the light we live by forever. That's glory. And how cool that is. And no more night. No more night. Night, darkness, always in the Bible. Bad, hurt, sin, evil. No more night. Not only does the glory of God illumine the earth, the glory of God protects us on the earth. Nothing can ever hurt you again. Nothing. No more night. I told you last week that the church has been blessed for the past three weeks. We've had about 300 um, deputies and other law enforcement officers from the county and the city train in the building uh, because our building uh, very well uh, mimics the kind of situations they might face, public setting, auditorium setting, classroom setting, school setting. So they've really enjoyed using our building for training. Well, it's been nice to get to know these uh, men and women. And, and so I asked a guy last week, how long have you been serving? He said, 17 years. I said, so what department do you work in? He said, narcotics. And I just sort of sunk, like, ugh. I said, I think, when I think of narcotics today in law enforcement, I think of like taking a bucket of water out of the ocean and it immediately fills with another bucket. He said, oh, pastor, it's worse than that because it fills with two buckets. Take one out, two come in. We're losing the war on drugs. And I said, let me get this right. You mean you go home every day and you tell your, when, you're at, when your wife says, how, how, how was work? You say, we lost. You're just right. 17 years, we lost. I said, well, what, what keeps you from being utterly hopeless? And I'll never forget his reply. He said, uh, serving as a police officer is what I do, but it's not who I am. I am a son of the King of Heaven. 
I belong to the one who wins the war. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.